Welcome to This Is Your Body, the podcast for students of the human body or for those who are just morbidly curious. My name is Dr. Bill. In this episode, our topic is allergies. Things I'm allergic to. People who believe in star signs and think nothing of starting a conversation with, Hi, my name's Lucy. I'm a Sagittarius. Rodents. Apart from miniature hamsters, which are not in fact rodents, but small, breathing, brown balls of cotton wool. And people who go to the gym. This is a quote from British television presenter Claudia Winkleman. All kidding aside... In today's podcast, we will discuss the cellular and molecular anatomy of allergic reactions and some of the truths and misconceptions about allergies. Allergies are included in what we call hypersensitivity disorders, and that term is pretty appropriate as we are going to be talking about exaggerated immune responses which, instead of being protective, are instead damaging. Before we go down the rabbit hole too far, a good place to start is with a very broad definition. Allergic reactions are inappropriate or exaggerated immune responses to non-self. And by that I mean molecules or substances which are foreign to the body. By extension, allergen is a molecule which, when it's recognized by the body, induces an allergic response. And while we're at it, the word allergy comes from the Greek words allos, meaning other, and ergon, meaning reactivity. Let's start with something most of us can relate to. How do you recognize an allergic reaction? What are the signs and symptoms? Remember, a sign is something you see, and a symptom is what you experience. You heard a sneeze at the beginning of this podcast, and that can certainly constitute one of the signs. For convenience, we can organize the signs and symptoms of allergies into four groups. Respiratory, gastrointestinal, integumentary, and psychological. Runny nose, cough, wheezes. And sneezes are allergic signs similar to anyone who's ever experienced so-called hay fever or pollen allergies, or when an allergen has been inhaled. Respiratory symptoms can also include chest tightness or difficulty breathing. Gastrointestinal signs, which are more likely when you have ingested an allergen, include the oh-so-pleasant trio of stomach cramps, vomiting, and or diarrhea. Even more alarming is when you're tongue swells or throat starts to close when you've ingested something that you're very allergic to. And stay tuned, I will have a delightful story about this later in the podcast. GI symptoms may be a feeling of cramping or bloating. Skin signs frequently include rashes or hives, and hives are essentially raised rashes, also known as urticaria, as well as swelling, redness, and warmth. Pain and itchiness are also frequent allergy symptoms, regardless of whether the allergen has been inhaled, eaten, or touched. And this reminds me, Swelling, redness, heat, and pain are all clues about a common thread through most allergic disorders, which is inflammation. More on this in a bit. Finally, psychological symptoms can include a feeling of being faint, or for some, a sense of impending doom. I mean, who wouldn't feel doom if your throat is closing in and you're having trouble breathing? So, what is it about allergens that can enable them to elicit all these signs and symptoms? How can we connect what we are seeing and feeling with the underlying disordered physiology? We begin with the notion that your body recognizes something foreign. Just how does it do that? Well, there are a couple of mechanisms, and we should start by saying something about type 1 or immediate hypersensitivities. In this case, 
non-self molecules called antigens, or allergens, are recognized by a specific antibody called immunoglobulin E, or IgE for short. Let's work our way through what happened beginning with the first contact with an allergen, say, a peanut protein. When you either touch or swallow a peanut antigen, regardless of whether or not you are allergic, special cells called antigen-presenting cells, or APCs for short, in your skin or in your gut, recognize that antigen by means of specialized surface molecules called major histocompatibility complex type 2, or MHC2 receptors. These are proteins which very specifically bind to the antigen. From there, these antigen-presenting cells, which to me kind of look like multi-tentacled starfish, wander off to the lymph nodes in your body. Let's imagine this is something like a three-person relay race. The first runner is the APC, and the runner's hand is the MHC2 receptor. As for the antigen, think of that as the runner's baton. If you are unlucky enough to be allergic to that antigen, at which point we will call it an allergen, that is because the first runner, the APC, also has co-simulatory molecules alongside its MHC2 receptor. So the allergen binds, and the race is on. Runner number one meets the second relay runner in a lymph node. In real life, this is the APC meeting up with a special type of white blood cell called a helper T lymphocyte. The helper T cell, in this case, recognizes the allergen orbiton using a special receptor which we'll call the T cell receptor. The T cell receptor works in a fashion that is similar to the MHC2 and that it also recognizes a specific allergen. So with respect to our little analogy, the first runner, the APC, passes the baton to the next relay runner, the helper T cell, which grabs the baton or antigen. When this happens, the second runner really takes off. In the immune system, we can say that the helper T cell becomes primed for action. The helper T cell usually becomes a secondary type of helper T cell called a type 2 helper T cell, which we'll call Th2. What does this prime Th2 do? It releases two signaling molecules called interleukin-4 and interleukin-5, which belong to a powerful group of molecules called cytokines. More on cytokines in a bit. Remember that the Th2 cell is the second relay runner. It sends interleukin-4 to the third relay runner, which in this case stimulates another white blood cell called the B lymphocyte, or B cell. And what does the B cell do? Does it win the race? Actually, no, it doesn't. The B cell doesn't really win. Not the first time you're exposed to the allergen. It does, however, something which is called class switching when it's first exposed to an allergen. Before I can talk about that, I have to tell you the one big idea to remember here. B cells make antibodies. Got it? B cells make antibodies. So what does class switching mean? It means that after the first go-round with the primed Th2 cell, the B cell goes from making one class of antibody to another class of antibody. Specifically, in allergic reactions, B cells switch from making IgG, or immunoglobulin G, to immunoglobulin E, or IgE. And why does that matter? IgE is the antibody which is most directly involved in the cascade of events that occur during a full-blown allergic attack, which is called anaphylaxis. IgE really likes to bind to another cell in your body, called the mast cell. The mast cell is largely responsible for most of the signs and symptoms of allergies that we mentioned a while ago. 
When IgE binds to mast cells, the first time that you're exposed, the mast cell gets sensitized. Another way to think of it is that the mast cell gets ready for battle. These mast cells essentially become covered with IgE molecules, which act as detonators for the allergy cascade. The next time your body gets exposed to the allergen, it still runs through some of the same relay that we spoke about earlier, APC to TH2, TH2 to B cell, but this time the sensitized mast cell is primed and ready to explode due to all those IgE antibodies stuck to it. These IgE molecules specifically recognize the same allergen, and things happen very quickly from there on. I just said that mast cells explode, which is not exactly accurate. But they are absolutely chock-a-block full of granules containing inflammatory molecules. And allergens binding to mast cells, at least to the IgE on mast cells, quickly results in the release of these molecules. Wait a second. Remember we mentioned something about inflammation? What was it? Yes. The signs and symptoms of inflammation include redness, heat, swelling, pain. And this is really largely the mast cells doing. The inflammatory molecules that are released upon second exposure have a variety of effects, and there are several different types of molecules, but for the moment, let's focus on just one of these, and that is the molecule histamine. I'm sure you've heard of antihistamines, and I'll mention some of the different types of antihistamines when we get to one of the burning questions later on in the podcast. But before we can talk about antihistamines, I'd really like to first tell you about the many effects of histamine. Without the risk of hyperbole, the effects of histamine are profound. For starters, it causes the smooth muscle surrounding arterioles, that is the tiny vessels leading to capillaries, to dilate or open up. And this causes a rush of blood flow to capillaries. This increases blood flow to places like the skin and the lining of the respiratory tract. At the same time, histamine makes capillaries leaky, increasing the space between endothelial cells, which are specialized, very thin, single-layer cells that comprise most of the capillary. So picture this. You've just turned on a fire hose full blast, and you've poked a bunch of holes in it. Referring back to your capillaries, what happens to the blood? Well, the clear fluid in blood is called plasma. And because of these leaky, engorged capillaries, plasma leaks out of blood that's contained in the capillaries and goes into your tissues, causing puffiness, it's called edema. In skin, the same vascular forces result in hives or urticaria, which are those raised itchy bumps in skin that are frequently associated with allergies. Larger areas of skin swelling is called angioedema. In the airways, increased blood flow and leaky capillaries also cause the airway lining or mucosa to swell. And right there, you've got the mechanisms behind three of the four features of inflammation. Redness, and heat from the extra blood flow, and swelling from plasma leaking into tissues. As for pain, it's also caused by chemicals released by mast cells, as well as other chemicals released by damaged tissues. Oh, and remember the interleukin-5 that was released by Th2 cells? Interleukin-5 triggers another white blood cell, the eosinophil, to release more damaging molecules called proteases, which cause a lot of cellular damage. I said histamine has profound effects, and I meant it. Histamine binds to H1 receptors in the smooth muscle surrounding bronchioles, which you may remember are the small terminal parts of the air conductive pathways in your lungs. The result 
Well, the airways constrict. So now you're in a bit of a jam. The swelling of your respiratory tract decreases the diameter of the conducting pipes and, to add insult to injury, the bronchi constrict, further limiting airflow. You might hear this as a wheeze, the sound turbulent air makes, going through a constricted tube. As if that were not enough, good old histamine gets yet another kick at the can. It binds to histamine receptors on other mast cells, causing them to, well, explode, releasing more histamine, and so on. We call this a positive feedback loop, or adding insult to injury. So I'm sure that you get the notion that histamine has far-ranging effects. These occur typically within minutes, and we call this the early phase reaction. Still other molecules are released by exploding mast cells, including more interleukins and another class of bioactive molecule called a leukotriene. And these attract other immune cells to the scene of the crime, that is, the site where the allergen first came into contact with your immune system. These cells include some of the usual suspects, such as Th2 cells and eosinophils, as well as another white blood cell called a basophil. This can occur long after the allergen has gone, typically as long as 8 to 12 hours later or even days later, giving rise to what is called the late-phase reactions. Most folks, thankfully, only experience mild symptoms such as hives, nasal congestion, watery eyes, and even asthma. However, if somebody is particularly sensitized or exposed to a large load of allergens, the increased leakiness of blood cells and airway constriction can result in even more serious signs, such as a huge drop in blood pressure and severe airway constriction. Why the drop in blood pressure? Remember all that plasma leaking out of blood vessels? If you go back to the fire hose analogy, imagine so much water leaking out of the hose that it deflates and the flow at the end slows to a trickle. It's really the same idea in severe allergic reactions. Not enough blood and therefore oxygen gets to your vital organs. And this is a situation which is called anaphylactic shock. This is beyond just annoying or uncomfortable. This is a medical emergency which, if untreated, can cause organ failure and death in really severe cases. Well, that's kind of depressing. Thankfully, there are several tools in the medical toolbox for treating anaphylaxis, and it's really a nice segue into some of our burning questions. Burning question number one, what can we do for anaphylactic shock? Let's remember the challenges to your body during an anaphylactic reaction. Your soft tissues are swelling with all that plasma leaking out of capillaries, and this can close down your airways, and not enough blood is going to where it's needed. Epinephrine, or adrenaline, which is made in your own body, is typically administered to counter these effects. It is a vasoconstrictor, which means that it helps reduce the flow through capillaries and thereby reduce airway edema, and it also promotes bronchodilation, that is, a widening of bronchioles. Additionally, it'll help to increase blood pressure. For these reasons, it is the first-line treatment of choice for anaphylaxis, and this is according to Dr. Parul Kothari in her Harvard Health blog. People with severe allergies need to carry an epinephrine auto-injector, such as the EpiPen or the AdrenaClick. Whether you either suspect or know you've been exposed to an allergen, you need to administer epinephrine immediately. Even then, you've still earned yourself a quick trip to the emergency room. And remember, allergies can come in two waves. Once at the hospital, additional epinephrine may be given, 
either intramuscularly or by intravenous infusion. What are the other meds? Well, while they're not a substitute for epinephrine, other medications can be used in addition to epinephrine. For example, antihistamines, which block the H1 receptor, or steroids, alone or in combination, may help to relieve some of the signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis. Steroids, whether inhaled, injected, or taken orally, help to address the inflammatory part of allergies. Mind you, antihistamines take longer to work than epinephrine, and steroids take longer still, as in several hours or days. Supplemental oxygen and intravenous fluids are additional therapies for helping to increase blood pressure and get oxygen to cells and tissues. Ultimately, however, the best treatment is always avoidance, which is great if somebody can recognize the source of the allergen. Here's a little first-hand story concerning myself and my sesame allergy. One evening, while out with my friends, I ate some hummus. You hummus lovers, or haters if you're allergic, will know that this food is rich in sesame. Fortunately, my friends dragged me to a hospital, which also fortunately was just across the street. By the time I got into the emergency room, my face had swollen around my glasses, and my uvula, that little piece of tissue at the back of your throat, had swollen to the size of my tongue. A young medical resident, who was perhaps tired or just maybe thought I had an enormous face, didn't really think to look down my throat, and all the while I was trying to articulate that my uvula was choking me. When he finally heard the word uvula, he said, what the heck is that? My life flashed before my eyes until another person in the ER, actually one of my former anatomy students, chirped in and said, it's a little hangy down thing in his throat. You better check it. Burning question number two. Why do I get sleepy with some antihistamines and not others? The first generation antihistamines, such as diphenhydramine or Benadryl, block the H1 receptor, but also cross the blood-brain barrier where they can cause sedation and sleepiness. As well, Benadryl can bind to and block muscarinic receptors. These are the same types of receptors to which another neurotransmitter called acetylcholine binds. The result? High heart rate, also known as tachycardia, dry mouth, and thickening of mucus are common side effects in the first generation antihistamines. In contrast, newer generations of antihistamines, such as loratadine, also known as claritin, or effexofenadine, also called Allegra, do not cross the blood-brain barrier very well and have very few anti-muscarinic effects. Perhaps you've watched that Will Smith movie called Hitch. You know, the one where he eats some lobster knowing he is severely allergic but wanting to impress his date? Spoiler alert, he falls asleep after downing a prodigious quantity of Benadryl. I hate to admit it, but I've been there myself. Enough said. By the way, it is also often said that antihistamines reduce itching. In point of fact, they really don't. What drugs like Benadryl can do is make you very sleepy, enough so that you don't really notice the itch. Burning question number three. Can you lose or gain allergies? A great question, and the answer is yes and yes. Take, for example, cow milk allergies. About 2-3% to of infants under the age of one year are allergic to cow's milk and exhibit some of the symptoms of an anaphylaxis we've talked about. Fortunately, by the age of three, 85 to 90% of children lose this allergy. And while we are on the topic of milk allergy, this is not to be confused with milk or lactose intolerance, which is not an allergy, but is rather a deficiency of the enzyme lactase. In contrast, if you have a peanut allergy as a child, there is only a 20% chance that you'll outgrow it. 
The odds are even worse, about 14% of outgrowing it if you have a tree nut allergy. As for new onset allergies, these can and do occur. One day you may be enjoying your favorite shrimp cocktail appetizer, and then another time you may tuck into the same dish only to find your eyes swelling and your breathing getting difficult. One in ten adults have food allergies, but only one in four adults with a food allergy report getting it later in life. Shellfish and peanuts are two of the allergens which are more common amongst the late-onset food allergies, although we could include mold, bee stings, and other sources of antigens which can and do become allergens in adults. Why is this? Well, we don't really know for sure, but one theory is called the hygiene hypothesis, which suggests that increased use of antibiotics and more sterile conditions may shift the ways in which our immune systems respond to foreign antigens. Another theory is that late-onset allergy is the result of accumulated exposure to an antigen which, beyond a certain threshold, is able to trigger our antigen-presenting cells. Still another theory is that there may be a mast cell disorder related to some other condition. Doctors Colin Barber and Christina Kolachinsky, who are from my hometown of Winnipeg, and by the way, Winnipeg is the place after which Winnie the Pooh is named, and that's no lie, published a paper in the journal Allergy, Asthma, and Clinical Immunology. In this article, they mentioned the idea that adult-onset IgE-mediated anaphylaxis may be an indicator of some other disorder, such as an infection or an increase in bioactive molecules, which could trigger mast cell activation. However, to be perfectly honest, we do not yet really know why people get allergies later in life. Burning question number four. How do allergy shots work? Allergy shots, or allergen immunotherapy, is based on the idea that when exposed to very small but gradually increasing amounts of a potential allergen, you develop tolerance to that allergen. The trick seems to be to start off with small doses, not quite enough to provoke an allergic response. This then induces your body to start to produce fewer Th2 cells and more Th1 cells, as well as more of another type of T lymphocyte called a Treg, or a regulatory T cell. Tregs generally tone down parts of the immune system or suppress it. Specifically, Tregs secrete a cytokine called interleukin-10, which ultimately decreases the amount of immunoglobulin. How does interleukin-10 do this? Well, there are many parts to this story, but one theory is that immunotherapy causes class switching. Remember, we talked about that earlier. And in this case, the class switching is the reverse of what happened before in B cells. Now B cells shift from producing IgE to going back to producing more IgA and IgG, which do not have the same effect on your mast cells. Do allergy shots work? Well, there is reason to believe that immunotherapy for dust mites and asthma and a few other allergens does indeed help, although not everybody is a candidate to receive this kind of immunotherapy. At the time of this recording, which is January 2021, immunotherapies for food allergy, which can include oral ingestion, sublingual or under the tongue, and epicutaneous introduction of food allergen, are mainly in the experimental phase. Of particular interest to many parents of children who have severe peanut allergy is the possibility that peanut immunotherapy may be used to lessen the severity of this deadly allergy in preschool children. Doctors Leanne Soller and colleagues in a 
2019 research paper in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Practice found that peanut immunotherapy was successful in helping develop a degree of peanut tolerance in 243-270 children. It should be pointed out, however, that this therapy is not yet approved in Canada at least, and about 0.4% of children in the study did develop a life-threatening reaction that was successfully treated with epinephrine. So, we've come to the end of our allegory about allergies. Are you feeling itchy because of IgE? Or are you having an epiphany about epinephrine? Whichever the case, I wish you all, dear listeners, happy mast cells. Dr. Bill, signing off for now.